Heartly welcome to this uh, episode of the podcast series, The Four Speeches. Uh, in this podcast series, we've presented the four speeches every leader has to know, the opening speech, the executioner speech, the consolation speech, and the farewell speech. Um, in the series now, we will focus on particular speeches from a particular context, and each time we'll have a guest, and uh, we'll look at, uh, and that guest will help us to analyze and look at the background of this speech and, and we'll offer some good discussion. I'm Bård Nordheim, I'm a professor at uh, NLA University College and as always I'm joined with my colleague uh, Joar Haga from Stavanger. Our guest today is Dion Forster who's a professor at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. His main focus in public theology and ethics but uh, heartily welcome to you Dion, good to have you here. Thanks Bård, lovely to be with you and, and Joar, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, just uh, on the 9th of September 2020, um, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, he gave, um, he addressed the nation or he spoke on television saying that um, I've just received news that the legal eagle of our country, George Bezos, has passed away. This is uh, sad for our country. And he spoke at length, uh, describing him as one of the architects of the constitution and as um, someone's work towards democracy. So Bezos was obviously the uh, human rights uh, lawyer, um, died at the age of 92, but he was also known for the one uh, defending uh, Mandela and the others in court in, at the Rivonia trial, which we'll return to. But, uh, the interesting thing is the term legal eagle. Uh, is that a known term? Was he known uh, uh, this metaphor of the legal eagle? I mean, one thing is that the sound of it is very uh, interesting, but it's a very catchy term, I would say. What do you say, Dean? Was he known as the legal eagle? Indeed he was. And I, I think, uh, Bord, that's a, a sort of Americanization of, um, you know, someone who practices law and is known as a a prominent lawyer and, and George Bezos of course was exactly that uh, person. Um, he had fled uh, the Nazis uh, and come to South Africa and um, had experienced you know come to, to South Africa as a first generation uh, from Greece and so was able to see the context of South Africa um, as it moved into apartheid um, out of colonialism into apartheid uh, in the 1940s and 50s and um, trained as a lawyer, a human rights lawyer in particular, but, but was very different to many of his white compatriots uh, in South Africa. And, and possibly that could be from you know, his own childhood, his own life's experience, his family history. Um, so he, he, you know, he, he comes at issues of justice and rights uh, in that way. And, and as you mentioned, he, he was the lawyer of, of the defendants at the Ravonia treason trial, 63, 64 and played a very significant role in defending many anti-apartheid activists through some of the darkest periods of, of South Africa's history. And yes, was, was also involved in, in the drafting of, of the, uh, con the first constitution, democratic constitution, uh, that was accepted in 1996. But uh, the speeches we'll look at today, uh, I think all of them, they, um, they, uh, <laughs> they, uh, bring to us themes that are associated with the eagle or the legal eagle, the, the themes of justice and freedom and liberation. Uh, in that sense, uh, what sort of metaphor is the eagle? I mean, it's such a standardized metaphor. What do you think uh, you are, the, the metaphor of the eagle? 
I mean, for an American, it would obviously be very closely linked to the understanding of what the nation is. And uh, if you'd ask a child in Norway, they would be afraid of eagles if they live by the coast. So why do we, uh, why do we honor the eagle? So why do we associate freedom and justice with the eagle in, in, to such extent, do you think? I think, I think um, uh, from, uh, from coming from, from uh, a sort of uh, centuries of, of uh, history, or political history, I think the eagle is uh, uh, the Roman Empire, and it didn't mean freedom. It meant freedom for the citizens of of the Roman Empire. But the eagle was uh, the um, SPQR, the the um, the sign of the uh, Senate, the Republic of of Rome, and um, it was on, in all military campaigns. Uh, the Romans had. So it, I think the eagle is, is more connected to the, to the, to the justice uh, idea, or at least as, as the Romans saw it, their imperial justice. So it's, it, ha- it has... Um, um, uh, it's interesting because the connotations it bore, uh, at, at least until um, the Second World War, was an imperial it, the eagle was under an, an imperial sign, but that yeah. may have, might have been changed now. So what do you think in, in, in a South African context, is uh, the eagle a symbol of uh, freedom or injustice or more of the empire, and as you are described here? What do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, in, in some senses, uh, some of those tropes, I think, would have carried through, um, particularly through the the colonial and and imperial occupations of of various parts of Africa and certainly South Africa, mm. so I, I'm sure that that some of those um, elements would have been carried through, particularly in the settler population, predominantly mm. white population, English, Dutch, French, um, but for for traditional black uh, Africans, um, the eagle is a far more powerful symbol that's connected with with um, you know things such as, as as courage and intelligence and uh, the capacity to to outsmart um, you know it, it's it's a, a bird which which would be you know seen certainly in in African traditional law as as a symbol of strength um, you know something to be feared indeed you know something that has the capacity to to uh, defend itself or inflict harm. So I think that that, that kind of symbolism would be there. Um, although I think Cyril Ramaphosa's use of it, um, you know, he, he is quite a, a, a westernized um, uh, person in the sense that, you know, he, he's one of South Africa's most prominent business people, uh, having spent after 1994 great parts of his time in, in America in particular. Uh, he happens to be the franchise holder of McDonald's, <laughs> I think for Africa. So, so his sort of connotations of that are probably far more Americanized. Yeah. Americanized, I think so. So his yeah. use of it is probably a reference to, to you know, what would have been used in popular television programs and, and something like that, you know. Yeah. But the funny thing was when I first read about this, uh, the news coverage, it was... Uh, transmitted through a Norwegian news agency who translated the Reuters or AP Associated Press uh, news release on this. And they had translated the metaphor into Norwegian and judicial eagle. So it was not the 
So it sounded really awkward in Norwegian. I never heard of sort of the juridisk urn for those of you Norwegian. So it was sort of a very, and that's an interesting example of how metaphors or tropes travel and mm. how they then, what does it mean? I was at once curious, what was the idea behind this? Uh, yeah. Uh, but but as we'll return to Bezos and the whole uh, Rivonia trial in in a minute. But um, in present day South Africa, um, I mean, we could uh, do a full analysis of uh, Corona time speeches. We won't do that. Uh, uh, maybe we'll have some discussions on it. But um, uh, Nelson Mandela was a Methodist, and uh, on in 2019, the first female presiding bishop of uh, the Methodist Church of Southern Africa was elected, uh, Reverend Purity Malinga. And um, the church had had 100 presiding bishops, 90 white and 10 black men. And she was the first then. And she gives a speech in a conference uh, where she addresses the very directly the current situation of uh, women in South Africa. And uh, Dion, could you tell us a bit more about the background and then the speech itself? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think a couple of things just that are important for uh, those who are listening or watching to know is that South Africa remains a, a very deeply religious nation, as, as many parts of Africa do. And of course, religion is, is a fairly um, ambiguous, sometimes ambivalent uh, social concept. You know, religion can, can give people the capacity to make meaning. It offers resilience. But it can also reinforce uh, cultural, um, social stereotypes like, you know, for example, patriarchy uh, in, in African culture can, can take on theological strength and then sort of be seen to be, well, you know, the man is to be the head and the leader and this is how it is ordained by God. So, so these social elements are, are very important to understand um, in, in the sort of precursor to this speech. A deeply religious nation. Um, the last household census in, in 2013 showed that 85% of South Africans uh, indicated that they are Christian. Um, so self-identified as Christian. Of course, I think that's a nominal identification. Um, actual church membership or attendance is, is obviously lower than that. Um, but in some senses, Africa is constructed very differently to, to the postmodern West. Um, you know, we, we find ourselves living in the post-colony. So post-modernity post is less prevalent in the way in which we live than, than you know, post-colonialization. So figuring out identity and the construction of, of power in society is a very, very important thing for Africans. You know, they mm. faced uh, almost 400 years of subjugation, uh, the mm. removal of, of black human bodies, the extraction of natural resources. Uh, in contemporary society, we have things such as Afro-pessimism. Um, racism continues to be a global phenomena. Uh, that that many Africans deal with on a, on a daily basis. So so into into this, um, a deeply religious society. The Methodist Church of Southern Africa is the largest uh, Christian grouping in mm. Southern Africa, mainline Christian grouping. So whoever holds the titular leadership of this church is a very prominent person. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know people like Nelson Mandela, 
were, were Methodists. In fact, he was a, a lay preacher and used to lead Bible studies. Um, you know, there are a host of other very important people, perhaps one of the, the, the most prominent um, anti-apartheid activists, Robert Sabuke, was also a, a Methodist lay preacher. So, so there's this tradition of, of um, Methodist Christians um, really being at the forefront of, of freedom and liberation. I mean, just one little bit of background is that um, the Methodist Church first came to South Africa in 1797. The first record of a Methodist on, on Cape Shores was 1797. And it was a Sergeant Kendrick uh, from Ireland who was stationed at the Cape to protect the interests of the British, because obviously this was a feeding station for ships uh, traveling from Europe to, to India before the, the Suez Canal. And he starts a prayer meeting and eventually a church but because the British occupy uh, the Cape, um, when the first minister arrived um, and, and asked for permission to start a Methodist church, the governor, Lord Somerset, said no. You know, only the established church, the Church of England, may uh, exist here. And so uh, this particular minister, uh, William Shaw, records in his diary, um, today is the last time that I will ask any uh, man, any political authority for permission to do the work of God. And he goes up the coast and starts a mission station. So there's this, this sort of social consciousness in, in Southern African Methodism that sees itself as a, as a, a non-compliant, uh, revolutionary, uh, you know, uh, movement right from its very beginnings at the Cape um, all the way through. Of course, the reality is something slightly different, uh, which, which I've Dion, let, let me guess, you're a Methodist yourself, am I right? <laughs> I am a Methodist, uh, and, and, and uh, I can just say, you know, for those who are, are, are watching and, and listening, that I, I do have a, a complicated relationship with my denomination. I'm, I'm often quite critical of it, um, yeah. and, and as, as academics are. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so just to say, Purity is a very interesting person. Um, yeah. You know, she's the first woman. Uh, as you said, out of a hundred presiding bishops to take this very prominent role, not only a prominent religious role, but a prominent social role. And, yeah. and I think that's something worth thinking about when we look at the speech. Yeah, and in the speech, she, I mean, she does the um, traditional greetings in the beginning, but she quite quickly gets to the point of addressing femicide or gender-based violence against uh, women isn't that right and she's and how does she do that uh, and how she yes so th this is another very important thing um this particular speech um took place in in uh, in august uh of of 29 i think it was august 2019 could have been september i don't have the date on hand now mm. and um south africa as you may know uh borden you are has really struggled with the issue of gender-based violence. Um, now, there are, there are many explanations that people offer for that. Um, one of them is that, that we're dealing with the ongoing trauma of 400 years of colonialism, the dehumanization of persons, the denial of human dignities, the inability to, to rehumanize and recognize one another. But what was particularly painful at that stage was in the weeks leading up to this conference. The conference is like the, the major synod of the Methodist Church. It happens once a year. And in the lead up to this conference, there had been 
five cases of femicide. And in fact, the most recent one had taken place uh, just a few hundred meters from where the conference was meeting in the week leading up to the conference. And this was a, this was a very traumatic period in the media. All of the reporting was taken up with this the self-questioning, why is it that, that South African men are so violent, uh, raping women, um, killing them? Um, and, and so this, this really was the issue of the moment. And, and here we have um, Purity Malingus stepping into that space. I think the second thing which is also important to recognize was that in the year before her election, um, for the first time, there had only ever been one regional bishop. Um, so she was elected as the presiding bishop, but there had only ever been one regional bishop, and it happened to have been her who had been elected, uh, a woman who had been elected to bishop. But suddenly in this year, 2019, there were four women uh, elected into that post. Now you are, you, you, you'll immediately want to ask some questions, why suddenly... Uh, this and, and what had happened was late in 2018, perhaps one of the most prominent um, male ministers in, in the Methodist Church had been recorded making very sexist remarks about women ministers. And this was leaked to the media, um, and, and this particular minister, uh, the Reverend Fokile Mahana, chaplain to the governing party, uh, the African National Congress, was caught in a, in a voice message. Um, you know, saying very, very sexist things about women ministers. And the church itself was so incensed by this. Is this really what our, our male ministers are doing? And this led, I think, to, to that final emotional push that said we need a new kind of leadership. We need women to come and help us to find ways to structure church and society uh, because the men in our church are failing us. So, so this speech fits into that very particular kind of national uh, context of trauma, but also an internal trauma within the church uh, that has to do with sexism and gender, gender uh, abuse, gender-based violence. And she, uh, Purity Malinga, quite at the beginning of the speech, says that I've been the only uh, woman among male bishops, and that is an experience that I do not wish for any woman. So she starts out quite directly addressing uh, this reality or trying to frame or name the reality in that way. Uh, also, one thing that I wanted to uh, bring up is that right at the beginning of the speech, she also uh, quotes uh, the last book of the Bible, the Revelations, and then the second last chapter, Revelation 21, uh, 5, I'm making everything new. And my resolve mm. is to participate with the one seated on the throne saying, I'm making everything new. So, uh, she's in some sense, I wouldn't say she doesn't use the word revolution, but it's, uh, she's up for change. Isn't that right? In, in, in the imagery and the words she used. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think she's, she's um, like many, you know, particular leaders who, who make these kinds of speeches. She's, um, she's, she's sensed the particular mood um, within the church and, and within members of the Methodist church and in society at large to say something is wrong and we do need, we, we need a radical change to try and set things right. And it's, it's going to be, it's going to be uncomfortable for many, particularly for those who hold power. 
particularly for white men and black men, it's going to be a very uncomfortable thing. But in some senses, what you can see her doing there is two things, you know, first of all, by, by making reference to being in, in, in partnership with the one who sits upon the throne, she's, she's almost giving this, uh, this responsibility a sort of divine authority. Yeah, absolutely. The democratic process of election is somehow um, the, the hand of God on the church saying, this is the time, uh, this is a Kairos moment for the church. Yeah. But, but there's another interesting thing that, that Western readers might miss. Um, in African culture, as in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the place of woman is often at the feet of men. So even, even today, um, very often in, in African households, um, a wife will sit at the feet of her husband, uh, you know, to give him his food for him to eat. And you'll see that she makes reference to that um, in the speech, you know, that, that she doesn't, she's not wanting to upend uh, what might be culturally uh, appropriate, but she's wanting to, to establish a new form of justice for women that gives women agency and empowers them. And this comes from sitting at the feet of God, who is king. So I think that's a very, a very subtle uh, linking in her own mind, and it comes through in the speech to, to the fact that, that what is going to be happening here, folks, this is something that, that God has created the opportunity for us to do. So you, she uses a common, a well-known image of how a household looks like, and she uh, sort of suggests that the household of God uh, sets things in a different order in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what she's doing. Yeah, uh, you are, uh, you've read the speech yourself. So what were your first uh, reflections or questions when reading the speech? I think um, uh, it's very, very interesting to, to hear what Dion says about the, um, the, uh, the mood of the moment. And, but I, I think it's, it's also important to, to, uh, to reflect on the very, um, what we could say, uh, the confessional uh, specifics of, of such a, a talk. I mean, the Methodist church is born as a revolutionary child in England. And, and it has been ever since um, had this um, rhetoric of, of change as a necessity, not, not necessarily responding to a situation, but mm. the, 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 the change needs to come um, because there are injustice and injustice is, so to speak, written into the structures. And that is what's, what what is so different between Methodists and Anglicans, because the Anglicans would bless uh, the institutions, whereas uh, the Methodists would criticize them. And, mm. uh, and I, I think it's, uh, it, make, it makes it more understandable what she's saying when you have that common um, change, the, the ideology of change in, in the background, because she taps into a story that is very, that has very long lines. And, um, and I, I think that is also part of what makes it powerful, that, it, that it's not just about her reading the, the spirit of the day, but she's then able to tap into a, a much longer tradition. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, you know, um, part, of, part of the, so this is another aspect to what is happening in, in 
South African Christianities in particular. So you are, as you rightly say, I mean, the Methodist Church, um, John and Charles Wesley um, were sort of dissenting clergy. Uh, you know, both of them died Anglicans. Uh, neither of them wanted to establish a new denomination. But by necessity, with, you know, the, the, the uh, civil war revolution that takes place in the Americas, people face sacramental starvation. So they ordain clergy, something that only a bishop should do. These clergy are not accepted in the Anglican Church, so suddenly this new thing called Methodism gets structurally born. And then, of course, you know, you have all of the revivals in England. Um, the Wesleys themselves are deeply involved in social movements, uh, you know, collective bargaining, the precursors to, to labor movements. And, and something of this evangelical zeal and social consciousness finds its way into the DNA of, of Methodist theology. So the evangelical element is go throughout all of the world, proclaim this gospel, um, but the content of this gospel is not only spiritual liberation, it's also social transformation. So Wesley's very famous uh, words that there can be no personal holiness without social holiness. That what we believe you know, in, in our, our churches and in our worship and in our private lives needs in some ways to be experienced and witnessed in, in, in our collective lives. But of course, the issue you are is that, you know, the very arrival of Methodism on the southern tip of Africa is by colonial means. It's not a preacher who comes, but a soldier. Mm. And so you see this, this sort of internal tension. It's, it's present in this speech, but you see it in, in all of the history of southern African Methodism. Um, that this church, you know, it, it's an establishment church. It, 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 it's a church which, you know, until the, the, the late 1960s, even though it was the largest black denomination in the country, only had white bishops. Um, you know, the, the clergy wore the kind of dress that would fit in a cold England, not in, you know, 35 degrees Celsius. <laughs> African weather, you know, so cassocks and, and these kinds of things. So this kind of decolonial turn is, is something which is, which is very, very prominent in, in contemporary Methodism. But what Purity Malinga does is she adds an additional element to that. She says that, in a sense, the, the, the decolonial uh, Africanization and liberation of, of Southern Africans has tended to be something which is dominated by men for the objectives and aims of the maintaining of power for men, whether it's white men or black men, it's the, it's the maintenance of a certain kind of structure. And what she's doing is she's saying, well, there's a further step that needs to be taken. And this is the liberation of all of South Africans. So you can see she uses some conciliatory language, you know, Galatians 3, um, neither, you know, male nor female. But her message is very, very clear. She's saying, listen, folks, when, when I take over as presiding bishop, we're going to shake things up a little. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that, in fact, has been the case since she's, she's taken the role as presiding bishop. But, but the, what you are, um, are addressing, I, I think you are perfectly right in, in the, in the um, uh, that the elements could be sort of, you could ask why not, um, why not also import um, further elements? Why shouldn't we abolish churches? Maybe we should start having uh, services in, in basements or, 
I, I have a friend who's a, an architect and he, he claims that these Christians, they go around and, and they want to be so humble all the time, but why do, do they build churches like monuments over their, uh, their mm. extremely, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, um, not humble faith? I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, they are marking that they, are, they, they believe in this extreme uh, potent God whereas they go around and pretend to be humble. Now, mm. but we continue to be, and we all, in Norway, we, 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 we sort of um, have this, um, when, when the faith is dwindling, we sort of prop up the church with more power symbols. It's, it's, a, it's a way of handling, you know, de- 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 decrease, uh, a spiritual yeah, decrease. Decline, yeah. Yeah, decline, sorry, yeah. So the, uh, um, but, but, but I think the, 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 the makeup of, of the speech, um, it's, it's like when, when, when Martin Luther King walks to Washington, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, we are walking towards something. We are going to transform this place. And, and this is the, mm. the rhetoric, I think, of, of change. That it, but the problem is, as you, as you uh, correctly says, what should be changed? What should be kept in the change? What is, so to speak, mm. with the institution that needs to be maintained? I mean, it's the same with the with the African National Congress. I mean, uh, Jakob well, Zuma. I think I think Jakob Zuma had had very many um, um, prominent features, but in 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 some ways he was also the old. Af- African chief, wasn't he? So, so the, yeah. the, the, the idea, my, my question is always when I you know, meet uh, these um, uh, addresses with, with uh, that ad- address change, what is to be kept and what's, what is to be changed in the change? Yeah. So you are the one, one important thing I think that, that's also um, worth just keeping in mind is that um, Obviously, the construction of the place of religion in society is radically different in Africa to what it is in many Western contexts. Um, you know, in most, in most towns in South Africa, and certainly in most um, what we would call, what are called townships, so the former segregated areas in which black persons were to live in proximity to, to white suburbs so that they could provide cheap and affordable labor. So in most of those regions, the church building was probably the only formalized structure. So, so Christianity and the church plays not only an internal role of, of resilience and meaning making, it also occupies a very prominent, um, a, a very prominent sort of symbol of, of structure and normalcy. Um, and for many black leaders, I mean, if you think how many how many of our most prominent leaders came through the church? I mean, we'll talk about Nelson Mandela in a minute, but he was schooled in a Methodist school. He lived in a Methodist boarding house when he went to university. Um, you know, the same with Robert Sabukwe, Z.K. Matthews. I mean, all of these prominent leaders, Winnie Mandela, um, you know, all of these persons, in some senses, you know, the church was the place where, where their kids were taught in schooling. It, it became an informal clinic. It was a, 
a rallying point to gather food when there wasn't enough to eat. It was a, a venue to meet that was safe from the security police when you needed to plan a protest. So, so the sort of social location of, of the building of the church, the church's building, um, is constructed quite differently in, in African, uh, South, Southern African social life. But so is the notion of what the church is. You know, what does the church provide for us? So there's a sense in which some theorists say, um, you know, Norris and Engelhardt wrote a very interesting um, book on this entitled Sacred and Secular. And, and what they're saying is that, that because of the sort of security axiom and the cultural traditional axiom of, of what role religion plays in cultures and traditions, South Africa almost in a sense, you know, skipped modernity. We went from pre-modernity to, to late modernity. Um, and so some of the sort of secularizing forces, the loss of confidence in, in, in belief, the, what, you know, uh, Max Weber would have called the sort of demystification of, of reality, it doesn't play a role in society. We've sort of meshed the political and the spiritual and the social uh, into one another. And the church is that nexus. That's the place where it happens. So a speech like this, by this kind of presiding bishop, you could remove the, the biblical references and it could, you could say, here's a nice speech for a political leader. Yeah. You know? exactly. It has those and, and kinds of elements that's also in it. how it reverberates uh, out in the... In, in the world, so to speak, and yeah. and it's it, yeah. I, the, the, it has this, and and you you can feel the dire um, things that ha, had has not not merely that have not merely um, religious consequences, but also is deeply political. And I think it's it's a it's a very effect, effective um, way of communicating a, a political um, message. Uh, before we, uh, I mean, we need to look at the two uh, Mandela speeches as well. Uh, uh, but before we do that, uh, I just want to ask you, Dion, it fascinates me that throughout the speech, there's one thing, and I don't know if this is uh, an institutional thing, but it's certainly part of the Methodist legacy, I suppose. She mentions when she lists up these actions that uh, they need to address, things that need to be done politically and in church. She comes back to the importance of teaching ministry. Uh, in, the, in the late 80s, when I was uh, uh, quite much younger than I am today, I remember there was a, a Norwegian pop song where the text was, hey, 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 let's change the attitudes. And the idea was to, how do we change the attitudes and the behaviors of people, which is really what she suggests. It, it seems that for a method, it's, it's through teaching ministry. Uh, is that right, in a sense? That it, it's sort of an optimistic view that the mode of operation is that if you just teach people the right things long enough, then finally they will change the behavior. Is that sort of the mm. argument? Well, I think there are two things to recognize here. And of course, the one thing that's always important is, is not just to recognize the context in which the person is speaking, but also to recognize who the speaker is. And uh, Purity Malinga was trained as a teacher before she became a minister. So she still has this perhaps um, optimistic confidence in the importance of teaching. I, I think the thing that's allied to that is during the, the apartheid years, um, black South Africans, because of job reservations, could only enter into very, very few formal professions. And teaching was one of them. Uh, the ordained ministry was another. For those reasons, you could apply to go to a university. 
and you, you know, teachers became and ministers became probably the most prominent public intellectuals in their communities. Doesn't that sound like a strange thing? <laughs> you know, they're, they're the most respected people. These were the people that you wanted to have at your wedding anniversary celebration or be present, you know, at, at, at a very prominent social function, teachers and, and ministers. So she embodies um, sounds, both of it those like, It sounds like Finland. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like Finland. That's, that's the place where teachers and so? ministers still, still have a say in, in our societies. So, yeah. so maybe Monty <laughs> Python was right in making the song Finland, 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 the country where I want to be. But anyway, that was, uh, <laughs> let's move back to South Africa uh, and, and teaching ministry and the teacher and the minister as sort of the people who holds the village together, I hear. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's her personal sort of um, story. But then, of course, we have to keep in perspective the Methodist church as a movement. So what made Methodism grow, um, you know, as, as a missionary movement, was the fact that from its very inception, it was never racially segregated. So, for example, the Church of England uh, ministered to the settlers and then might have brought in some missionaries who ministered to, to initially the slaves and then to the indigenous population. Methodist Church never had that. So they had integrated schools, integrated hospitals, and, and the sort of, um, in some senses, this was the product of the empire. This is what colonialism was all about, to say, you know, let's educate, let's so-called civilize. So education plays an absolutely crucial role in, in the sort of um, social consciousness of what it means to be a Methodist. Of course, we know nowadays that, you know, teaching in some senses is less effective than socialization. I mean, if we could build strong communities of care and belonging and meaning, people's lives would be far more effectively transformed uh, by that. But we still have this sort of collective memory of the heyday of, of a string of Methodist schools running throughout Southern Africa, producing the greatest leaders of every generation. So as long as there's teaching, there's hope and change. Uh, but we have to move to another Methodist then, Nelson Mandela, and two of his speeches, uh, one of which was three hours long if it, uh, when it was delivered in 1964. <laughs> um, the interesting thing is that both speeches ends with the same quote. So the speech from 1990 in Cape Town, uh, Nelson Mandela quotes the end of his Rivonia trial speech. And that's probably the most, at least for an outsider like me, the most famous part of the speech where Nelson Mandela says, during my lifetime, I've dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I fought against uh, white domination and I fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. So that was both the, the end of the trial address and the Cape Town address, if I'm right. But Dion, give us some background on the two speeches before we discuss uh, a bit more on them. Yeah, so of course, the, the 1964 speech, the Ravonia trial speech, became known as the for which I am prepared to die speech. So that, that I think, really sort of captured the imagination of the public at that time, that this was a principled struggle uh, for which its, its primary spokesperson 
was willing to offer his life and many others were willing to do. So the background to that is to say that the, the African National Congress um, started out in the early 1900s um, with uh, something that was known as the Freedom Charter. So after years of, of brutality, um, deliberate disenfranchisement by first of all the Dutch and then the British, um, as South Africa was, was moving towards 1910 and, and the establishment of the Republic, um, there was a recognition that in the new Republic under Jan Smuts, that um, black citizens would remain equally disenfranchised. And so the charter movement, uh, the, the Freedom Charter, is what all of this is based on. Uh, and out of that came the, the African National Congress, um, started, by the way, by a, a Congregationalist and, and a Methodist. These two got together and said, you know, by virtue of the convictions of our faith, you know, that we believe all persons are created in the image of God. We have to create this movement of African nationalism. So to create a, a nation in Africa uh, in which all citizens share equally in, in the bounty and the blessing of, of the land. So Nelson Mandela and, and the African National Congress were actually not the most uh, powerful uh, political party in the lead up to this particular trial. They became so in the years afterwards for a very important reason. Um, they were, because they, were, um, they weren't pan-Africanist, in other words, they, they saw the possibility of retaining a space for people like me, white Africans in the new uh, South Africa, Whereas the largest political movement up to that stage, which was headed by another uh, Methodist, Robert Sabukwe, and, and later by a, a former bishop, Stanley Mahoba, the Pan-Africanist Pan uh, Congress, they actually wanted what was very popular when colonialism was ending in the 1950s. They wanted an African nation state in which Europeans and particularly white persons had, had no place. But the African National Congress because they had this charterist idea of human dignity and human rights and an equal share for all, was obviously far easier to fund internationally and to receive persons into exile. Mm. Um, so what began to happen was the, the African National Congress grew in prominence through the media. Um, more and more members were, were being supported in exile. Um, and when the recognition came, initially it was, uh, as, as with many of these movements, a pacifist movement, but when they came to recognize that the only way to deal with the ongoing structural violence of apartheid, uh, particularly after the Group Areas Act of 1958, was to begin a, an armed struggle, Mkonto mm. uh, and, and and Nelson Mandela was one of those who was part of the, the founding of Mkonto Westizwe. Mkonto means the spear of the nation. Um, so the, the, the founding of this armed wing of the African National Congress, um, that was when things really began to, to heat up. So what was initially just the banning of persons, placing them under house arrest, um, relatively short-term uh, incarcerations changed radically once you know, there began to be armed incursions, um, the placing of strategic bombs, um, you know, the kind of deconstruction of economic violence through calling for sanctions. And the apartheid state just said, well, you know, we have to take this in hand with might. So these uh, persons who were at the Ravonia treason trial uh, were all arrested. Um, mm -hmm. Nelson, Nelson Mandela was amongst them. And because he was trained as a lawyer, 
um, he, he was made the sort of spokesperson for the group. So rather than going into the trial and having each of them questioned about their individual actions, they chose to put together a collective statement that he would read as a defendant from the dock. Um, because he was a, 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 you know, one of the accused, he, he couldn't present it uh, you know, as a lawyer would from, from the podium. So this is, this is a sort of statement from the dock uh, which he wrote. But yeah. it, it, it fascinates me. I mean, the length of this is one thing, but um, uh, he, he goes into great detail in, uh, in describing, in naming reality. I mean, it's almost like an academic article in parts, documenting discrimination, inequality, and, and all of that. And I just uh, it came to my mind as you talked about it, the, this, this violence element. He also quite detailed argues for why what he has been involved in is not terrorism. It's a sort of violence of another kind, he argues. So uh, because you can see there's a dilemma here of the non, uh, non-violent tradition of the ANC in, in some sense. Yeah. And how are you supposed to negotiate yeah. that? And- yeah. And of course, you know, for many Christians who are involved in, in, in these kinds of liberation movements, the sort of moral dilemma of, of the use of violence. But just to say behind all of this, what we've really got to see how the speech needs to be cast is that what they had decided to do was to say the apartheid state is illegitimate. It's an illegitimate state. And so it doesn't have the right to place us on trial. No. So what the speech is doing is that this is Nelson Mandela placing the state on trial, the supposed uh, state, and saying to them, let me construct a case to show why you are on trial, not us. And whatever decision you choose to make is an illegitimate decision. Now, uh, I I think that what he does is is a repetition of what the the people in the American liberation movement did uh, 200 years earlier. Namely, they are putting Mm -hmm. the same laws I mean, what the American Constitution is, is just an accusation to the king that he has not followed his own rules when applied mm. to America. So I think that that's probably um, the, a very good reading of, of, uh, of the speech by Mandela. And it puts politics on a higher level than just... Uh, the, the politics of power because he, he refers to justice and justice mm. in, a, in a very clear sense that, uh, that it is un, the, the, the whole trial is unjust. It's a very nice political feature that he, he turns the tables. Yeah. yeah. But you're, there's, there's also, of course, another pragmatic aspect to this. I mean, think about this. You know, if, if you allow the state to become the, the prosecutor, to ask the questions. They're the ones who control the narrative. Um, I mean, we've seen this, for example, you know, if you look at, at these recent, you know, trials, the impeachment of the American president and other things, you know, whoever gets to ask the questions controls the narrative. And there's, there was a sense in which I think between George Bezos, Nelson Mandela, um, and, and the others who, who were part of this, this particular event, they said, we're not going to give over our agency. We want to control the narrative. So that's one aspect of it. It's a very pragmatic thing. I think the second thing was also to recognize that the state-run media in South Africa um, 
wouldn't allow the truth to get out. I mean, you know, it, it was, it's not like we have now democratized media where anyone can, can broadcast the message. The only way to get things published was to find an editor who would publish them. However, if he presents this into the record, it becomes a matter of, of public record. I mean, people can access it, journalists. And so he constructs this incredibly important framing of the true reality of what is happening in South Africa, not what the media is providing to the West. Um, because remember, behind all of this is not just South Africa. It's also Britain who has economic interests in the mines. Yeah. It's you know, Europe who, who wants diamonds. It's America who wants uh, you know, the food supply that comes from South Africa. So there's an incredible um, set of complicit relationships that doesn't want the truth to get out behind all of this. So in some sense, being put on the stand, it gives Mandela and Bezos and the others an opportunity to not just document for inner purposes, but document publicly uh, uh, or name another reality than the, the one that is thought to be censored out then, in a sense. Yeah, yeah and, and what was interesting, um, Bord, was that um, the, the speech that was written obviously had legal input. So Nelson Mandela's own legal input, uh, the input from, from Bezos and others, but it also had uh, the input uh, of, of a journalist and, and a speechwriter. So uh, Nadine Gordeman and Anthony Sampson gave input into the speech. And when they were interviewed afterwards, they said that they styled the speech in some ways after Fidel Castro's uh, speech, history will absolve me. So, so they knew this would be a historical moment. And even if Nelson Mandela should die, and we need to just touch on that element because that's a, a very important, that was a very important rhetorical strategy to include that in the speech because they were facing the death penalty. But, but they had in mind that even if they should die, that history would record this as being the moment of truth telling. So even if apartheid only ended in 2020, uh, this speech would be looked back upon as a historical moment in which the truth was told. And so they construct it in a sense to say, you can see that even though we're on the underside of history, we are the ones who are right. So in some sense, escaping marginalization by turning the tables as we talked about, um, Anything else you want to reflect on, Yua, based on uh, uh, the speech? Uh... No, I, I think um, um, that the, um, the, uh, there is a, an element in what Dion says about the truth here. So it's, it's, it's not about my version of the truth. And I think it's, it's, a, it's very, it's very um, you know, for a, for a postmodern European to, to read a piece of paper like that, it is, it, it, some of the, of the um, philosophical reflections that it's, you know, it's just another, we, we, we all have different uh, takes, say, takes so. or, or uses of the truth and its plurality and all that. But here it's, his claim is that something has happened and it's, it's not just. So it's, he is mm. sort of, sort of um, appealing to a, to a truth with a capital, capital T. I think it's very mm. important to understand the, the gravity of the speech. He's not claiming a truth, he's claiming the truth. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, you know, Bard, just to say that that bit that gets quoted in both speeches, um, mm -hmm. the closing, I mean, that's really the, the linking pin. I mean, if you watch, there, there, there is a recording, by the way, of, of the speech, the three hour version. Um, if you watch it, it, it's actually, the majority of it is, it's not, it's not the kind of Mandela that we came to know as a popular leader. There's no populism here. I mean, it, it's calculated, it's careful, it's actually quite boring, some mm. commentators say um, in its presentation, until it gets to that last element. Mm. And the appeal to capital T truth is linked to this notion of common humanity that says, well, if you should take my life, if it should happen to be so that you take my life, uh, then I'm not only willing to live for the cause, mm that there is no white domination or black domination, but I'm willing to die for it also. And that was a, in a sense, a provocation to the judge, uh, because mm -hmm. at that stage, there, there was some talk that they would be executed for treason. And, mm -hmm. and initially they'd asked him not to say that in the speech, because of course, all of them could lose their lives. But, but they came to the point of saying, if, if it should mean that we do lose our lives, uh, in, in this trial. That's not something that we can control, but at least we want the truth to be out there that we lived and we died based on, on, on a, the cause of a common humanity. And that I think was the thing that sort of captured uh, the mood of, 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 of the country and even the world at that time. That's the bit that always gets played, that always gets said. And I think that's why it was included in the 1990 speech. It, it sort of linked these two historic moments. Yeah, but in a sense, uh, let's check if you agree with me on this. In some sense, the speech is both an executioner speech where he executes a verdict over the, the apartheid uh, uh, sort of government, say this is an illegitimate government or it's uh, based on common humanity. And at the same time, it's an opening speech, opening up a new reality or a new future with this, uh, where his willingness to suffer uh, and his passion for this worldview is what sort of uh, makes it both credible and persuasive, I think, to the audience. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, th I, think, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what both you and you are have perceived very correctly is that, you know, part of what he was trying to do there was to recast reality, to, re to retell what, what the real is. And of course, the thing that they were arrested for was um, they were arrested by the supposed Christian nationalist government, apartheid government, for colluding with communists. And they, they, that was the treason, was that they were trying to cause a sort of communist insurrection that yep. would deal not only with political issues, but the state was, was using this notion of fear, which we see is very common in populist rhetoric today, to, to sort of say, well, if, if this grouping of people takes over, their thinking, their communist thinking, will destroy your religious convictions, the social fabric of your society. So it doesn't only have economic and political consequences, but it will destroy the, the social fabric. And so part of what he does in the speech is he says, look, you know, of course, we relate to the South African Communist Party, but only insofar as they share the same ideal for the emancipation and the liberation and suffrage of all South Africans. Our ideals, however, he goes on to say, are founded in a free market. Uh, you know, they're founded in, in the freedom of belief and, and association. And those things, by the way, eventually are what, what uh, come into the 1996 constitution. 
we have to move to the next speech, or, uh, which uh, Mandela gave uh, right after his prison release in 1990, on February 12, on the, uh, outside Cape Town City Hall. And the speech starts with, uh, Amandla, Amandla, Africa, Maibuya, power, power, Africa, it is ours. So it's a different kind of speech, uh, Dion, uh, after, I mean, he spent all these 26 years in prison. So uh, what sort of speech is this on the, as he's just released from prison? Could you give us some background on the speech, Dion? Yeah. So um, let me say a few things about this. The, the, the time in history is very important. 1990 was a very important time in, in South Africa's uh, turn from the most oppressive and brutal periods of apartheid history towards the possibility of a new future. You know, I often say to my own students when I speak about this, I was a young Methodist minister um, at more or less this, this period of time. Uh, the church had decided if the state couldn't model what a reconciled, racially integrated country would look like, the church would have to take responsibility. So a number of us were sent against the law uh, to serve cross-racially. So I served in a, in a black congregation in, in Soweto. And I can say to you, after the second state of emergency, I mean, the state had absolute rights. You know, you'd be conducting a funeral and you'd get arrested and detained. Uh, you know, sometimes just in the manse, you know, they'd hear you'd said something in a sermon and come and detain you. So that kind of brutality after the second state of emergency had left within us a sense that we didn't think apartheid would ever end. I mean, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't fathom that in 1994, every citizen would have the right to vote for, for their leader. In some, so sense, Nelson, yeah, sorry, in some sense, the violence or, of the state had been so consistent over such a long time that you didn't expect the change to come. Is that right? Or Yeah, so the violence, but also just the power of the state. I mean, yeah. you know... Um, the, you know, the military was deployed, um, you know, you could be arrested for having black friends or white friends. Um, if someone reported you for saying something in public, you know, you'd be placed under a banning order. I mean, it, it, was, it was an absolute totalitarian, um, repressive sort of military state in the late 1980s. And then all of a sudden, a new leader gets elected, um, F.W. de Klerk in the National Party, and he can begin to see that because of economic sanctions, mainly uh, organized and, and popularized by another clergy person, Desmond Tutu, um, that South Africa was facing a massive economic collapse. It couldn't exist without access to the free market. And he also began to recognize that it was no longer possible to maintain the, the moral um, defense of what apartheid was. I mean, it was never possible to do so, but for, for a certain period, I think the Nationalist Party thought that they could. So he begins to see how can we move towards a dispensation in which there is a transfer of power. And Nelson Mandela, uh, first of all, gets brought from Robben Island off the coast of Cape Town to Polesmore Prison. Um, and and Bird, uh, uh, Bord and you are when next year in Cape Town, I'm going to take you there. It's it's the most remarkable place to to visit. I mean, Robin Island is particularly remarkable, but but his home in Polesmore, which I visited many times, 
is, is a most remarkable space, you know, to just be in that, that place. And while he's there, they open up the opportunity for him to begin to meet with leaders uh, of, of the banned political parties, the African National Congress, the Encarta Freedom Party, the Pan-Africanist Congress, uh, the United Democratic Movement. So all of these discussions are taking place. And, and Nelson Mandela then almost gets thrust into, into the public uh, eye because he's had 27 years in captivity. Yeah. Um, and, and he gets thrust into the public eye. And, you know, the interesting thing is when he goes into prison, he's a fiery, um, sharp-edged radical. Lawyer. When he comes out, yeah, when he comes out, he's, he's equally committed to, to liberation and justice, but there's a, there's a maturity, a softness there that says, what is the kind of justice we want to establish in South Africa? What is the character of this? that we want to establish. So this speech in some senses um, is a speech that says we've struggled hard. The struggle is not yet over. Don't take your foot off the gas pedal, but, but also recognize that the character of our struggle will need to change because, you know, De Beers owns all the mining rights and, uh, uh, you know, the Ruperts own all of the land and the farming. And, and if we're going to create a South Africa in which there's prosperity for all of us, we're going to have to make some compromises. Black South Africans, you're going to have to learn to make some compromises with white South Africans. This is hugely contentious, by the way. When I work with young black activists now, they say that was an act of treason by Nelson Mandela. We should have had a revolution. We should have, you know, dispelled that. And then, of course, he says to white South Africans, you're going to have to give up power. You're going to have to recognize that you can't continue to live in this way. So this is what this speech does. It's, mm. it's in that sense what I, what I would call, you know, the executionist piece. It, it's, it's communicating a tough message about a possible future. Yeah, so it's executing a verdict over the apartheid system. At the same time, it invites people to join in universal suffrage. Uh, in, so, uh, at one point in the speech, Nelson Mandela says, the sight of freedom looming on the horizon should encourage us to redouble our efforts. And... Uh, uh, and we call on our white compatriots to join us in the shaping of a new South Africa. The freedom movement is the political home for you too. So it's a very uh, sort of, uh, and our march to freedom is irreversible. So uh, it's a very sort of, uh, we're all in this together sort of speech. And as you said, just mentioned that this is a decisive moment, a Kairos approach. Uh, and uh, uh, it's obviously not three hours long because of the setting is different. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so it's in that sense, it's a different speech. So you are, uh, what's your take on the speech? Well, I, I, I also uh, think it's, it's clearly visible. This, um, um, the, what, what, what perhaps Hegel would have, uh, have uh, labeled a synthesis that he's, he has been a very radical, but he's, he is um, sort of tempered or mellowed or, or he, is, he, is, he is then um, framing himself, in fact, as the next president. I, I, I don't think he's, he, he thought that, but, but that's the, the, I think, the, 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 as we can read it now. And it, it has, because a political leader uh, uh, needs to, to find perhaps not compromises, because compromises is, is sort of a, 
a middle between extremes. But what he does is that he says that there's something in the future that is not yet, that has not yet come. So he's in, 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 in part trying to, to, uh, to induce hope. And also there's, a, there's an element of utopia in his, uh, it's a utopian mm. speech, in fact. Mm. So he's, 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 he's appealing to the people, come, come, come with me to sort of, of uh, think about what we can do if we are free. But you're, you know, one of the interesting things for me in the speech is that you can imagine, you know, the writing of this speech obviously took months of negotiation between him and the apartheid state. What, what, what are we allowed, what, not what are we allowed to say, but we're going to say this and them saying, please, you know, for the safety and security, would you mind dialing that back a little bit and, and we'll concede on that element. So this was a negotiated speech, um, mm. you know, between very, very radical elements who said, how can we be reconciled with injustice? I mean, you can't expect us to be reconciled with the people who continue to brutalize us. And him saying, look, if we're going to have a future, I mean, what these people can do is they can take all their money and go and put it in Swiss bank accounts and close down everything. And we'll end up like many of our other neighbors in, in Africa, you know, completely impoverished with no future. So you can see that there's some compromise there. And you can see also, again, the return to, to charterism, to the early uh, freedom charter. So this notion of a non-racial, democratic South Africa. But the other thing that I think you can also see, and this is exactly what I think you are, you've, you've put your finger on, was the kind of leadership that Nelson Mandela wanted to offer, which was the understanding that I don't think he ever, he ever saw himself as a, as a as a president who would serve two terms and establish uh, the dream for which he was reaching. What he was wanting to do was to say, I have to cast a vision of the possibility of, of a new South Africa. And in, I mean, he makes it clear in the speech, you know, whoever becomes, I'm not the elected leader. Uh, whoever chooses the leader, that person needs to be chosen by a democratic process. But Behind the scenes, everybody knew it would be him. But he's sort of saying, you know, and, and even the closing of the speech saying, well, when we disperse, let's disperse in a very disciplined manner. Don't let anyone have anything that they can hold against us. Let there be no looting, no burning. Let's show them that we are disciplined, that we can rule this country. It was almost as if part of the speech was directed towards the audience that would be seeing him in South Africa. But part of it was also to the international community to say yeah. your investment was good and now it's time for you to transfer your investment from these white oppressors to this new black government. You know, put your, put your money behind this because we yeah. can see a future. Here. Yeah, I mean, he even describes uh, the clerk as a man with integrity. And I mean, uh, this sort of phrasing is also a signal that this will be a peaceful, or we will aim at this being a peaceful transition in a sense. Don't you think? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the interesting thing is if you watch the video on, on, um, on YouTube, you'll see that the person who's holding the microphone is our current president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. And Cyril <laughs> Ramaphosa, in a sense, um, exemplifies, uh, again, you are what you were talking about, the sort of Hegelian synthesis. Um, Jacob Zuma, I think, was, was the antithesis of, of Nelson Mandela. You know, he, he really was, as you said, the sort of, you know, charming, thuggish 
guy who appealed to a sort of cultural trope that wasn't very constructive to to goodness and you know problematic you know perhaps trumpish in some senses if i can say that whereas whereas ramaphosa is this more sort of slick guy you know educated uh, in the west with with you know a sort of so you can see even the sort of grooming of people coming through there and and i mean you know i think if if nelson mandela were alive today he would probably be far more um, supportive of the kind of presidency that we see with with Cyril Ramaphosa, because that's what this speech really talks about. Then the the kind of presidency we saw with Jacob Zuma. However, the one thing I do want to say, and this is very important for those who are watching and listening, is that this kind of rhetoric has lost its currency in South Africa, because I mean, you know, people often, you know, say to me. How can you say that? You know, I refuse, for example, in, in my own writing to use the phrase post-apartheid South Africa. Because apartheid is not over. I, if my students do it in their writing, I underline it and say, defend this. I mean, I think we live in most apartheid South Africa. We are more racially divided, more economically unequal than we were before 1994. And a lot of people come back to this moment and say, well, this was too conciliatory. We gave we gave up too much to whiteness and to white oppression. And what we needed was something far more revolutionary, far stronger to get, to get wealth and power into the hands of, of black South Africans. So it's a very difficult thing, this. You know, you can see what Nelson Mandela was trying to do was to almost try and envision a future based on the charter. Mm. And, you know, in the years after that, they realized, I mean, how do you unbundle 400 years of systemic institutional racism uh, and, and, and absolute corruption. How do you unbundle that in eight years or 10 years or even 20 years? Well, the, the, I, I think the, uh, what you touch upon is, is perhaps the, um, the connection between what we could call reality in a sense, what, what is out there, and rhetoric itself, because mm. they will be words, and you can have statistics, or you can have um, a Trump administration working for you, finding some figures that will will uh, support your arguments. But there will always be an element of detachment from from what we call um, reality in the sense of of real economics, or or uh, or power structures in one or another sense. So I think what rhetoric is doing is that the, it is opening some doors and it closing others. Mm. And, and, and that, mm. is, that is the, because you, can, you cannot, you cannot um, have a speech that is representing uh, reality, at least not for everyone. But it, it is this envision of, of a future and, and, um, and it cannot be a future that is, so to speak, um, total in a sense, in a, at least mm. not in, in a Hegelian sense that you, you know, that's everything. So mm. it's, it's, when we evaluate these, uh, these uh, speeches, they should also be criticized as you do. I, I think that's completely appropriate. And it's, it's, if it, if it was not, it, it would be a sort of divine intervention. And that is, I think, out of, uh, <laughs> rhetoric's scope 
or pure hagiography. But, uh, 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 but, but I think the interesting thing here is that in different situations, you have different sort of uh, metaphoric symbols, stories available that could appear uh, convincing or persuasive in that particular moment. And if I hear you right, 30 years after 1990, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't try to play Nelson Mandela. You have to do something else to uh, renegotiate or describe the legacy for the South African future. There are different stories yeah. to be told in, a, in some sense. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just give you one example of this. Um, so I, I must just say again, you know, your book was so uh, helpful for me. It really helped me when, when we went, uh, when, when the pandemic uh, struck in South Africa, because I mean, we, we still have a very poor population who are very vulnerable. And our new president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who has his own faults, I mean, I'm, I'm critical of him for, for many other things, embodied a kind of um, Nelson Mandela-esque attitude on the night in which he addressed the nation to say, look, we're gonna go into a very hard lockdown. Um, you won't be allowed to leave your homes. Um, and, and we're going to do this knowing that we will face certain economic ruin. The next decade in South Africa will leave us poor and impoverished, and many of the dreams we've hoped for will have to be deferred. But we're doing this because we're wanting to save human lives. So in a sense, he was, he was saying, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to beat around the bush here, like you know Trump and others would say to say we're recovering and everything's going to be okay and it's better. He was honest, a little bit like what Nelson Mandela was saying here, saying, you know, we've got hard times ahead of us. Um, but he was saying the reason why we are doing this, the reason why we're willing to pay this cost is because there is something precious that we hold together and that's, that's human life. So, you know, my sense is that I think Nelson Mandela, um, what makes him a remarkable person is you know, we, we have had other very, very charismatic um, African leaders. I mean, people forget in, in the early 1980s, Robert Mugabe was the Nelson Mandela of the world. He was articulate, well-educated, he was yes. principled, um, but something went wrong there, you know? And so Mandela embodies something slightly different. And I think part of it is the fact that he saw himself as a visionary president someone who casts a future, who creates an image that he wants people to begin to inhabit. And then he immediately hands over to Thabo Mbeki, you know, who's trained at the London School of Economics, who, who can think about, you know, you know, how do we project manage this transformation? What do we do with schools and healthcare and education, job creation? And then unfortunately, because it's too slow, um, we have Jacob Zuma stepping in, who's a populist, who says what people want to hear. His only intention is to get power and stay in power for another term. Um, and eventually gets ousted because there are far too many scandals. And now we have uh, Ramaphosa. And you can see he's hearkening back in, his, in his, his public person. By the way, that's another very excellent section in the introduction of your book uh, mm -hmm. that says, you know, what the leader communicates it's not only what they say, but it's who they are. And I think that's why Nelson Mandela's speeches are so powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's because of who he was, not yeah. just because did, of what did, he said. And, and, and that, that is, of course, the, the, the most depressing part of, of rhetoric, that 
the the um, you can try to be you can train as much as you as you want, but in in the end you will be yourself, and <laughs> and that's a lament that it's very old. I mean, I, I I remember Cicero said the same. You can you can train people forever, but but uh, but the five percent who are excellent in in talking, they will remain excellent. Yes, and and they had had been excellent before that training started. So, so that is a, a, a lament for, for, for doing <laughs> rhetoric. So it doesn't all come down to teaching ministry in a sense then, and training. But uh, one thing with Cyril Ramaphosa that even uh, uh, sort of uh, echoed into in Norway and the rest of the world was when he failed to put on his mask. And this was seen as a way, a human president, someone who's uh, showcasing even his faults to us. Uh, yeah, and the interesting thing is not only, you know, that moment, but what he did the next day, you know, okay. and saying so a follow-up press conference, making fun of himself and saying, oh. you know, uh, wow, that was so difficult and you'd think the president would know how to do it. So you see, you see that element in him. But just, just to say, as with Nelson Mandela, and I've written about this in, in my other work, um, and exactly the same with, with Cyril Ramaphosa, we must be careful not to live with the myth of who they are. Yeah. Um, you know, the one thing we can never forget is that, that the Mandela that we have in later life, the statesman, the, the humble person who, 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 who leaves office because he has other options. He's already a world leader. Um, you know, we, we just need to be willing to deconstruct that slightly because we don't do any, uh, we don't pay any real tribute to their legacy if, if we mystify them. We must demystify the legacy. You know, Nelson Mandela had multiple relationships, serial womanizer, you know, he was the founder of, of Mkonto where sees where, you know, so, so there are many things, you know, and I mean, you know, the most controversial article I ever published um, was an article in which I said, it's time that we give up on the sort of civil religion of, you know, the high priest Desmond Tutu and South African constitution as our sacred text and the rainbow nation as our eschaton and, Nelson Mandela as our savior. And people hated that. Why? Because they want to believe things that are not true. You know, yeah. what we need in South Africa, I think, yeah. is people who are willing to say, let's, you know, roll up our sleeves and let's do the hard work. You know, that sounds like a, a speech in itself um, to make sure that <laughs> this podcast doesn't turn into a three hour long thing as the Nelson Mandela speech. It's, it, anyhow, it won't be as memorable. But thank you so much, Dion, for uh, being with us and uh, discussing these three uh, speeches. First, the one uh, from Purity Malinga and the two speeches from uh, Nelson Mandela. And uh, to our audiences, those listening and uh, watching, this was another episode of the podcast series, The Four Speeches. Uh, thank you so much for listening in.